Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Hello and welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. As always, I am your host, Nico Perino, and today's conversation is with Wen Fa. Wen is an attorney with the Pacific Legal Foundation, which is a nonprofit public interest law firm that is devoted to defending Americans' liberties when those liberties are threatened by the government. They had 170 active cases in 2018 and have 73 attorneys on staff across the country. The attorney we're speaking with today, though, is based in California and regularly litigates First Amendment free speech cases for the foundation. In this conversation, I ask Wen about some of his current free speech cases, the foundation's litigation strategy surrounding free speech more generally, and about his experience trying a free speech case before the Supreme Court. I spoke with Wen through the miraculous power of the internet. He was in California, I was in FIRE's DC headquarters, and I really enjoyed this conversation. Now, on to the show. Wen, thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me on. So let's give me and the listeners a little bit of background. How'd you get into First Amendment litigation? Uh, First Amendment litigation, it's something that I've uh, started on uh, during my time at PLF. Um, I remember we had a cert petition uh, representing a Nebraska, a Nebraska Tea Party activist, and he was retaliated against for, uh, you know, in his capacity as a Tea Party activist, saying that he believed President Obama was socialist. Um, the financial regulators in the state retaliated against him, and the Eighth Circuit actually found that had the district court not applied an incorrect standard of review, um, you know, he would have won on the retaliation claim. So we represented him uh, in his case, uh, cert petition before the Supreme Court. Uh, unfortunately, that uh, got denied. Wait, how did that case come about? Did, was he accused of violating a campaign finance law or something? Yeah, so it was- Or was it just uh, straight uh, disagreement with a uh, political message? It was a very interesting set of facts where um, the regulators, the financial regulators were just looking, uh, reading a newspaper and saw that he had made these remarks that were published in a newspaper. And then they called- um, you know, as financial regulators, they called his place of employment and told him to told them to investigate this further. And then one thing led to another. And uh, the client, his name's Bob Benny, was ended up uh, without a job. And, you know, the district court and the circuit court found that this was actually directly related to um, the pressures that were put on by the Nebraska state government. And I'm just to clarify on the facts, what triggered the campaign finance regulations? Because usually an individual citizen can speak about matters of a public concern, a political concern, without fear of falling askew of the campaign finance laws, no matter you know kind of how onerous they are. Was he a part of a pack or was he part of a group that was spending beyond you know whatever the arbitrary limit is? Yeah, so in, in this case, it wasn't actually a you know a campaign finance 
violation. It was just basically after the regulators read his statements in the newspaper, they sort of pressured his employer over and over again to sort of mount a campaign uh, against uh, Mr. Benny. And as you know, there are several regulations on the book, not not necessarily finance uh, campaign finance regulations, but regulations uh, governing financial entities. So they basically started uh, searching um, left and right for any excuse they can use to end up terminating him for, from his place of employment based on this pressure from the state regulators. And ultimately, he was terminated because of the pressure that they mounted. And that got you interested in First Amendment litigation. Well, certainly I was always interested in uh, First Amendment litigation. That was the first case that I had a direct involvement in. Um, you know, I remember in high school, we were reading Tinker versus Des Moines, the uh, the case about black armbands in school and the Supreme Court saying that the school, the First Amendment doesn't, you know, students don't shed their First Amendment rights at the schoolhouse gate. And I thought that case was fascinating because it involved, you know, children expressing their political viewpoints through passive, non-disruptive speech. So I, I've been interested in the First Amendment for a long, long time. The Benny case was my first direct involvement in a lead capacity in a First Amendment case. But even before then, I've done First Amendment cases. I remember I was when I was a fellow at the uh, Institute for Justice, I worked on a tour guide case, uh, which uh, involved a First Amendment challenge to New Orleans regulations on people just, you know, giving tours um, to the friend and to the general public around the city. Um, so I've been I've been interested in First Amendment cases for quite a while and am continue, continuing to pursue that path. Well, perhaps your most high-profile First Amendment case was, of course, the Minnesota Voters Alliance v. Mansky case, which was uh, a Supreme Court decision from 2018 in which I believe you argued the case, correct? I did not argue the case. I was uh, the counsel of record at the petition stage, um, but I and second chair during the argument. Uh, but I, I did write the cert petition in the case and was substantially involved in the case. And was, you know, as far as... Uh, you know, First Amendment litigation goes, the goal or the dream of is, of course, to argue or um, brief the Supreme Court. Talk a little bit about that case and the path that led you to the Supreme Court. And if I'm not mistaken, it, it came pretty early in your career, right? You're a relatively new attorney, or at least the last 10 years. Yeah. So I've been practicing, um, let's see, I graduated in 13. So I've been practicing for about six years now. Um, the, the Minnesota Voters Alliance case was a case that, you know, I just happened to read about on, I think, Twitter, a news article that I found on Twitter, uh, when the Eighth Circuit decision came out, I was, you know, frankly shocked that there were laws that barred people from wearing t-shirts and, uh, you know, apparel in the polling place. Um, so I contacted the council who were who was representing um, Mr. Selick, our client in the case, and uh, we discussed the issue. And then he stayed on as local counsel, but we took the case over uh, at the petition stage. And you know, the challenge with that case is, even though there wasn't really a direct circuit split, which is something that the Supreme Court really looks for when it's taking cases, and that's when when two different circuit courts across the United States disagree about a 
an issue. Exactly. You might have a court of appeals in California reach uh, one decision on an issue, and then you might have a court of appeals in Texas go the complete other way on the same issue. And that's really the type of case that the Supreme Court uh, looks for when it's deciding whether or not to grant um, grant review. But in any event, uh, even in cases without a direct circuit split, uh, sometimes you know the facts are so outrageous and contrary to uh, Supreme Court precedent that the Supreme Court will grant review anyway, and that's what it did um, in the Minnesota Voters Alliance case. It, uh, it granted review, I think, November of 2017. Let's talk a little bit about those facts. What were the uh, plaintiffs or the petitioners in this case wearing that they were told they couldn't wear when they went into the polling place? Yes. So the plaintiffs um, were wearing mainly a t-shirt that said uh, Tea Party Patriots, um, to the polling place. And, you know, they were told that that would be viewed as, uh, you know, a violation of the Minnesota statute, which banned political apparel. But beyond the statute itself, the county actually provided a guidance document that said, you know, political apparel means anything that can be construed as supporting, uh, or, or opposing any issue on the ballot, anything that might view be viewed by the reasonable object, uh, reasonable observer as political. And there was actually a very interesting moment at the oral argument before the Supreme Court about this, when Justice Alito asked the government's attorney to sort of define what would be political under the statute. So Justice Alito asked, you know, would someone wearing a T-shirt that contained the text of the Second Amendment be viewed as violating the statute? And the government's attorney said, uh, yes. And then Justice Alito said, well, what about the First Amendment? And the government's attorney said no. And that was, you know, uh, laughter erupted in the courtroom because that really showed sort of the arbitrary way that this was applied and could be applied by people enforcing a uh, overbroad ban on political apparel. Were there any follow-up questions on that question? What was the distinction that the attorney was trying to draw between the First Amendment and Second Amendment? Well, I, you know, I, I don't know. And I think maybe the attorney really <laughs> sort of regretted that right when he said it. I think he genuinely believed that a T-shirt with the Second Amendment should be prohibited and a T-shirt wearing with the First Amendment uh, should not be prohibited. And I think that belief was based on his personal viewpoint that, you know, the Second Amendment might not be de- as deserving of protection as the First Amendment. Of course, you know, in a, in a government ruled by law, not by men, uh, government officials shouldn't be allowed to pick and choose uh, what kind of speech they want to allow and which kind of speech they want to censor. And I think the Minnesota Voters Alliance case was a big decision uh, to vindicate that principle. But it's a decision that you're still trying to get enforced across the country. It looks like you have another case, uh, Ostrowich v. Trotman. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, Ostrowich v. Trotman, involving uh, other plaintiffs who went into a polling place and were prevented from wearing what they were wearing or told they needed to take off what they were wearing. Certainly. So right after the Supreme Court issued its opinion in the Minnesota Voters Alliance case, uh, the Texas Secretary of State's office was on the record as saying that Texas will continue to enforce its law, which is just as broad and in many ways worse than the Minnesota law. Um, So the plaintiff, uh, Jillian Ostrowich, was wearing uh, 
you know, a t-shirt that said Houston firefighter. Her husband is a firefighter in the Houston fire department. And, you know, an election uh, judge manning the polling place that day told her that she had to turn it inside out, um, go to the restroom and turn it inside and out before she was allowed to vote just because there was one issue on the ballot about firefighter pay, even though the shirt said really nothing about didn't even mention the initiative by name and certainly said nothing uh, opposing or supporting that ballot initiative. So is that case just filed and it's still in the trial court stage? Yes, that case was filed at the end of uh, February. Um, we are, we've gotten the motion to dismiss from the government and we're working on our response, uh, you know, at this moment. Um, in that case, we represent not just Jillian Ostrowich, but also a voter in Texas um, who was uh, stopped and threatened with arrest for wearing a Make America Great Again hat uh, at the polling place, even though this was during the midterm election and President Trump, who is often associated with that phrase, wasn't even on the ballot. But I think the bigger picture is, you know, when we're talking about uh, one's right to vote uh, and express her political opinions in a passive way when she goes to vote, you know, you have election judges all across the state of Texas really denying them the opportunity to vote and forcing them to choose between their right to vote and their right to free speech under the First Amendment. So after Minnesota Voters Alliance, clearly Texas has a statute uh, that you would think would fall askew of the decision in Minnesota's Voters Alliance, but Texas says it's going to enforce anyway. Are there any other states like this, intransigent states? Yeah, certainly. There are, um, I think, uh, you know, this was uh, discussed in the briefing between Minnesota and the petitioners in the Minnesota Voters Alliance case. So we disagree, actually, about the number of other states. It's somewhere in the ballpark of 10 to 12 states with um, a law that's similar uh, or substantially the same as as Minnesota's. And I think the Texas case is a really good um, case to really enforce the decision in Minnesota Voters Alliance because the Texas law is actually worse in many ways than the Minnesota law. Uh, for example, in Texas, the statute provides criminal penalties um, for violating the statute. And the statute also provides um, that you can't have uh, political apparel any anywhere within a hundred foot buffer zone outside of the building, uh, any building in which a polling place is uh, located. Whereas with the Minnesota case, it, the law only dealt with the inside of the polling place itself. So you know you can have public streets, public parks, maybe even private property in Texas where voters and other Texans are not allowed to engage in political activities, and that's a huge affront uh, to the First Amendment. So to play devil's advocacy here, if you had your way, would you think it would be First Amendment protected for a voter to walk in with, for example, a a candidate sign into the polling place? Well, I, I think we would have to apply that um, in, the, in the context of, you know, the first uh, the First Amendment principles of whether that would be viewed as uh, intimidating or disruptive or. Um, you know, whether it would it would constitute uh, a compelling interest under the First Amendment. But I certainly think that something as like a T-shirt, for example, even one that mentions a candidate's name, you know, that's just one individual um, expressing her political opinion. I, I think it's a 
quite a bit of a stretch to say that you're sort of getting in anybody's way just by wearing t-shirts, a t-shirt, you know, people wear t-shirts every day. Um, so I think, you know, the best scenario is to, to say that t-shirts and um, hats should be allowed in the polling place. Whereas, you know, I think a sign is a little bit of a closer call just because you have a, a greater threat um, under, you know, the Supreme Court precedent of just substantial disruption of, you know, coercion and things like that. I'm not sure that it would certainly be constitutional or unconstitutional, but I think it's it's a closer call. Yeah, one could imagine a scale, you know, at the far extreme, you could imagine <laughs> someone coming in with a blowhorn or a megaphone shouting Absolutely. their candidate's name. Somewhere in the middle, you might imagine someone carrying one of those candidate yard signs that you often see yeah. around election season. You might also envision on that scale someone carrying a big, big sign, like a five foot by five foot sign that might impede doorways. But it seems like on the lesser end of the extreme is 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 your case where you're just simply wearing a shirt. And in the case of the the woman in Texas, a, a shirt that simply says Houston firefighters, which you know, it's hard to read a political message into that. Yeah. And I think there's, you know, uh, it's important where the burden falls. Does the burden fall on the individual to uh, assert that he has a right to individual liberty? Or does the burden fall on the government uh, when it wants to take away an individual's liberty? And, you know, I think in the First Amendment, as should be the case elsewhere as well, the burden should fall on the government. You know, just because the government can regulate maybe some things at the polling plates doesn't mean that it can limit all things. It doesn't, and just because the government can restrict some speech at the polling place doesn't mean that it should be able to restrict all speech. And I think that's one of the important principles that we're trying to vindicate. I want to move on to another case that you're currently litigating, Kotler v. Webb. This is a case that stems from a professor at the University of Southern California who is a soccer fan, and he is a big fan of the London-based football club, and he tried to get a license plate to kind of celebrate that club, and then... And and then the DMV suggested that he was a a racist because (laughs) the Fulham soccer slogan is, come on, you whites, and it has always been, come on, you whites, because they wear white jerseys when they play, just as, you know, in the United States, we have the Cincinnati Reds, we have the St. Louis Blues, and, you know, we have teams referred to by the color of their jerseys. So, you know, this this is a case that John Kotler filed, you know, he's a constitutional law professor, he's argued before the Supreme Court of the United States, and I think he was deeply offended when the government implied that he was a racist just for supporting his soccer team. But, I think, you know, one of the bigger points is that the government shouldn't be able to regulate speech just because it thinks uh, that speech is offensive. The answer to a speech that we disagree with is to rebut that speech with our own speech. It is not to call on the government to censor that speech. And unfortunately, I think more and more today, we're seeing uh citizens call on the government to censor speech that they don't like. Yeah. And before John rushed off to the courthouse gates, uh, he did appeal his rejection to the DMV, uh, citing the team's origins and how the slogans are in widespread use, even by the team's managers, and also how there are other teams like Chelsea, the Blues, and Liverpool, the Reds, that use this kind of color as a signifier for the team. Uh, But the DMV rejected him nonetheless. Now, my question to you is, shouldn't it be pretty clear at this point after Levy Tam 
that something like this is unconstitutional. For our listeners who aren't aware of Lead v. Tam, that's the case uh, that was up at the Supreme Court. I forget what year. You might remember it better than I would. But involving um, Simon Tam and his band, The Slants, trying to trademark their name, The Slants, and being told by the Patent and Trademark Office that they couldn't because The Slants is a pejorative. Uh, And the Supreme Court said, uh, you can't. Uh, ban or deny someone a trademark or a mark because a, a term might be offensive. I think the same rationale would apply here. Am I mistaken? I, I think you're absolutely correct. I mean, uh, Justice Alito's opinion in that case uh, said that there's no happy talk requirement uh, in the First Amendment. You shouldn't be only allowed to say things that would make others happy. You know, I think a, a big tradition in the First Amendment is. The, the tradition of uh, robust and wide open debate. And you can't have wide open debate if you're only go- going to allow one side to express their political uh, or their viewpoints. So, you know, I think the bigger picture is the government shouldn't be able to censor viewpoints just because it deems them offensive. In fact, there were a lot of historical figures, for example, I was reading the other day, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr only had an approval rating about 25% uh, when he unfortunately was was assassinated. But, you know, today, I think all of us rightfully so revere uh, Dr. King and the contributions that he made to, to, uh, to America. And, you know, if, if the government could simply censor his speech, I think that would be a huge loss for all of us. So, again, to play devil's advocate, we could think of a scale here of offensiveness A license plate is on your car. Presumably it's seen by a lot of people, not just the police, but perhaps children driving in cars behind it. I mean, how far can we go or how far should the government be able to go in regulating what you put on your license plate? We know the government can regulate what goes across the airwaves uh, or perhaps, I don't even know, maybe what can go on billboards. But could you have an expletive, for example, on the license plate um, with the idea that children might see it is that does the first amendment demand that i don't i don't think the first amendment necessarily demands that um i you know i think as you mentioned with the airwave regulations uh under the current first amendment doctrine there are some things that the government you know does ban uh on the airwaves expletives the first amendment doesn't protect things like obscenities but i think that example only proves our case further you can't ban you know fox news station or msnbc from airing a news program just because viewers might find it offensive i would bet half the country finds fox offensive while the other half finds the statements broadcast in uh msnbc offensive but you know, the, the solution to that is to have competing viewpoints. It's not to have government censorship. So you can't ban speech using vague terms like offensiveness, but you're saying that, you know, you might be able to get away looking at those FCC regulations with narrowly defined expletives. Well, I think there is a Supreme Court case this year, actually, that will, I, I think, settle many of those issues. Um, that case involves, uh, you know, a trademark uh, for the term F-U-C-T. Um, so I, I think that's an issue that the Supreme Court is considering and will decide in the next few months. So I think that that remains to be seen. You know, uh, on a personal level, I don't think any of us live in a bubble. Um, I think it's rare that a kid 
will grow up and, you know, until that per- that kid reaches 18 years old, will never hear a profane word in his life. I think that probably is rare to the point of non-existent. Yeah. But, you know, even if you believe that to be the case, you know, I, I think it's certainly uh, a little bit removed from uh, just a regulation on merely offensive speech. So I want to talk a little bit now about the Pacific Legal Foundation. Uh, can you give us a little bit of background about the foundation and what its interest is in litigating these First Amendment cases? I work for the Foundation for Individual Rights and in Education, uh, and our interest is not just in um, setting new precedent, but also enforcing the law as it currently is. But I know that there's a lot of public interest litigation that that goes on. For example, you mentioned at the Institute for Justice, where they're looking for certain cases to attack bad precedent or open up um, precedent to you know broader First Amendment protections. For example, yeah. So first, uh, uh, so Pacific Legal Foundation is a national nonprofit, and we're dedicated to setting precedent in courts across the United States, and in particular, the Supreme Court of the United States. We have 11 victories in the Supreme Court. We're dedicated to fighting for individual liberty in several ways, including in property rights, economic liberty, free speech, and separation of powers. Uh, On the First Amendment particularly, I think we are mainly interested in three different types of cases. One is a type of ban on offensive speech that you see, I think, a lot in the college campus arena and also in other contexts across the United States. So we have cases like Minnesota Voters Alliance, cases like Osterwich, cases like uh, the Kotler case we just discussed, in which we really try to uh, say that there is you know, no First Amendment justification for banning speech just because it is offensive. Uh, We're also actively involved in a couple of other areas that I think are important in the First Amendment context. One is the compelled speech context, where the government is forcing you to say something that you don't want to say. We filed several briefs, for example, uh, challenging uh, government regulation in San Francisco that forced soda advertisers to dedicate uh, 20% of each advertisement uh, for a government message saying that the soda, soda is bad and don't buy it, while at the same time they're trying to convince people to buy their product. Uh, we're also working in the compelled subsidy program. So there, there is an argument before the Washington Supreme Court that I am going to on Tuesday that's going to be argued by my colleague, Ethan Blevins. And that is an instance in which Seattle is taking money from property owners and giving that to uh, other Seattle residents for them to use on any political campaign of their choice. So we saw the Supreme Court kind of push back against this in the Janus decision. And what we believe that there is you know, room to expand the principle that one should not be compelled to fund speech with which he disagrees. So I think those are three important areas in the First Amendment and three areas in which you know, Pacific Legal Foundation is committed to litigating uh, in the future. The compelled speech and advertising question is a pretty interesting one because you buy a pack of cigarettes, you see the Surgeon General's warning on them. That presumably is constitutional because we still have those warnings on the cigarette packages. But if I'm not mistaken, a couple of years ago, the Surgeon General tried to mandate that cigarette makers put graphic images about what could happen to your lungs if you smoke cigarettes. They asked them, they told them uh, that they had to put that on their cigarette packaging. uh, And 
the Supreme Court or a lower court told them that that was unconstitutional. So my question to you then is, you know, to what extent is a mandate to have a certain message on your advertising constitutional? You mentioned that it was 20% in this case in California. Would 10% be okay? Would 5% be okay? And I, I realize now as I ask this question that I keep coming back to like, where on the spectrum is it okay for the government to become involved? And where uh, are they running afoul of the First Amendment? Yeah, absolutely. I think line drawing problems uh, exist in every constitutional question. But in the compelled speech arena, I think the bigger problem is where the standard should be. So in a typical First Amendment case, you have the burden on the government to to prove that a restriction on speech or a compulsion of speech is necessary to further a compelling governmental interest. Uh, so the government must produce evidence. As I stated before, the burden is on the government to uh, justify its restriction on the on individual liberty rather than on the individual to to justify that he or she has a right to speak in the first place. But in a weird doctrine called the compelled commercial speech doctrine, the government only needs to prove that a compelled commercial speech law is reasonable. And the burden a lot of times falls on the individual to, to prove why, you know, for example, you have a, a government message on a private product. The burden falls on the individual to prove that, hey, that's that regulation is unreasonable. So I think, you know, what we're trying to do is to say that, look, you should have the same standard in this First Amendment context as you do in other First Amendment contexts. Because when you think about it, a compulsion of speech on your product is just as bad as the government restricting the type of message you express. Because, you know, in essence, when the government forces you to say something, that inherently changes your message and that inherently restricts what message you can express. So there's really no basis in law or logic to treat those two things separately. The government does regulate false advertising. I'm, I'm presuming you you think that that is an okay place for it to regulate? Sure. So misleading speech, the Supreme Court has said, is not entitled to um, First Amendment protection. In, in, commercial, in advertising, right? Because they did side with the, the gentleman who said he was a Medal of Honor recipient in the Stolen Valor case. They said, you know, it's not, it doesn't run afoul of the First Amendment to lie or mislead. But in the commercial context, it might make more sense because you are taking other people's interests uh, into account. Exactly. And I think the, the way that a lot of First Amendment scholars have looked at this problem is to say that when you are, you know, sort of getting a benefit for a, a misleading sort of speech, uh, taking someone else's, you know, property money. or money for your misleading speech, you know, that's more of a, an act or that's more of words that changes sort of the legal relationship between you and the other person um, rather than just pure speech itself. So I think that really, um, I think, is a justification behind uh, the exception to misleading speech in the advertising context. So the type of review that you get in your commercial speech cases or your compelled speech cases intersecting with commercial speech is different than you might get in your speech, uh, in your cases dealing with offensive speech, right? You have different levels of scrutiny? Absolutely. So when the government regulates just offensive speech, um, I think 
often that would be subject to uh, strict scrutiny, which requires the government to prove that you know the restriction is justified. It requires the government to produce evidence that the restriction on speech is justified. But when we're talking about um, you know a restriction, a compulsion of speech on your commercial product, um, the standard is just reasonableness, which is you know people disagree on what that means, but it's very deferential to the government. And in any case, uh, it's certainly more deferential to the government than, um, than the strict scrutiny level of review. And I, you know, this, this just reminds me of another problem that we're talking about misleading speech, but actually government compulsion of speech can lead, uh, to misleading the consumer. So if you had the government, uh, requiring all broccoli, manufacturers to say that their broccoli is cholesterol-free, uh, that might mislead some consumers um, to think that, oh, well, some broccoli is cholesterol-free, other broccoli might not be, and which in fact, you know, broccoli doesn't contain cholesterol uh, in general. So you speech compulsions in that way, I think, actually can serve to mislead consumers rather than to give them uh, you know, purportedly information that they need to make a decision. To get back to my earlier question, does the Pacific Legal Foundation take cases to enforce the law as is, or are you always looking to make the law more expansive for the rights you're seeking to protect? I think we are always uh, looking to, I wouldn't say make the law more ex- expansive. Or to bring it in line with the First Amendment. Yeah, the Constitution is what it is, but uh, we're looking to expand the precedent in a way that conforms uh, more with, um, you know, the the right interpretation of, you know, the free speech guarantees and the First Amendment and things like that. So every case we take, we're looking for ways to advance the principles um, that the First Amendment protects. Uh, we're not just looking for cases to sort of enforce an old precedent that we've already set. Yeah. Well, you know, I asked that question because if we're referencing your old employer, like the Institute for Justice, they have a very clear goal to um, strike down the rational basis level scrutiny in economic liberty cases or not strike it down, uh, raise the level of scrutiny in those cases. Of course, their understanding of the Constitution uh, leads them to believe that uh, those sorts of cases require stricter scrutiny than the courts have been applying them. So when I say, you know, expand the the law for for these rights, I don't it's not to pass judgment on how the courts are currently enforcing those rights, just to say it's, you know, mm-hmm. you're looking to make it more expansive based on your interpretation of what the Constitution demands. Uh, and in many of these cases, I, I think I would agree with you. So moving forward, what are what sort of cases are you looking at? in the First Amendment sphere, aside from the ones that you're litigating right now, what sort of open questions are you most concerned with? Yeah, and I, I think it goes back to the three principles we discussed earlier. Um, you know, we are concerned with uh, bans, broad and vague bans on offensive speech. We are concerned about uh, the government requiring uh, compelled speech, especially in the commercial context in which, you know, the speech doesn't really get a lot of um, the standard isn't mm-hmm. very high for the government to do that. And we are also concerned about compelled subsidy, people having to fund speech um, 
to which they disagree. So I think all three of those areas, and I think more generally, you know, you just mentioned uh, in the economic liberty context, we're trying to uh, ratchet up the standard of review from the rational basis test. And I think you see that in the First Amendment context as well. Uh, already mentioned in the c- compelled commercial speech context, we're trying to ratchet up the standard of, re- of review from the reasonableness standard. And in the commercial speech context, we are trying to ratchet up the standard from um, intermediate scrutiny to strict scrutiny. We believe that there's really no reason for the government to treat speech differently just because uh, the the setting is a commercial setting. And in fact, a lot of cases, it's very hard to determine what is commercial speech and what is not. So we think that there should be one standard uh, for all speech restrictions, and that is strict scrutiny. Well, I think we'll leave it there, Wen. Uh, where can we learn more about you and your work? Uh, you can learn more about me and my work at Pacific Legal's website at pacificlegal.org. All right. Well, thanks for coming on the show today and good luck with your cases. Thanks for having me on, Nico. That was attorney Wen Fa of the Pacific Legal Foundation. This podcast is hosted, produced, and recorded by me, Nico Perino, and edited by Aaron Reese. To learn more about So To Speak, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash freespeechtalk, or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast. As always, you can email us feedback at speak at thefire.org, or if you want, you can call in a question for a future show at 215-315-0100. If you enjoyed this episode, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. Podcast. Reviews always help us attract new listeners to the show. And as I always say, until next time, thanks again for listening. 